0: a lot of these guys are afraid of rejection. They're afraid to put themselves out there. And so to even to to basically avoid that uncomfortable experience in the first place of approaching and taking risks and talking to a girl instead, they just like immerse themselves in these statistics and develop these elaborate, you know, pseudo scientific uh, explanations.
1: Sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Two for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on another brilliant guest. This is Rob Henderson. He is a writer and psychologist with lots of interesting insights about the human condition. So welcome to the show,
0: Rob. How are you doing? Hey, Zuby. Thank you. Yeah, good, good. Great to be here.
1: No doubt, man. I've done a brief intro there, Rob, but for those who are not familiar, please introduce yourself.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, have a PhD in psychology from the University of Cambridge. I studied psychology at Yale for undergrad. Um, I have a book coming out uh, called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Uh, uh, February 20th is uh, the publication date. And yeah, I mean, I've had a kind of an unusual uh, winding, indirect path to higher education. Grew up in foster homes in Los Angeles. Um, never knew my father. Uh fled that environment as soon as I could, enlisted in the Air Force when I was 17. And yeah, did a couple of tours, uh, deployed, traveled the world, and then, uh, yeah, eventually landed at Yale, uh, studied there in the GI Bill. And that was 2015. So um, in the book, I talk about how I witnessed kind of the birth of what people now refer to as wokeness. This term hadn't quite caught on uh, back in 2015. It was still sort of in the embryonic stage, but I was seeing sort of the beginnings of cancel culture and what was occurring and so you know i document that at length in the final third of my book um and yeah i mean a lot of that is kind of the reason why despite having a phd i haven't pursued a traditional academic path and didn't become a professor and so now i'm mostly um known for my writing on substack and you know being on twitter and sort of creating this alternate um, path for myself as a as a writer
1: yeah, no doubt, man. I think you're, you're very much a, a free thinker. The term is overused sometimes, but when I look at the content you put out there or I listen to your interviews or see your writing, it's a range of very different, sometimes disparate topics, just really about what's going on with humanity and society and culture and where are we all trending, not just seen through a sort of simple left-right political lens like a lot of people do things, but with some real insights and thought behind it. So props to you because I think that that is cool.
0: Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I try not to, you know, I think, yeah, a lot of people want to sort of categorize people, put them into boxes and then they, you know, they want to know, oh, why are you saying this? What does this mean? You know, are you coming at this from a left perspective a right perspective? Are you progressive? and you know, don't get me wrong, like, I obviously have my disagreements with a lot of the sort of political correctness movement and all of that. Like, yeah, a yeah, free thinker. I think, you know, that's you know, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll accept that. I like that. But I mean, it's just um, I wish more people would sort of adopt that, that way of thinking about things. You don't have to um, take a stand politically on everything. You can just sort of see where the truth leads, regardless of whether it is consistent with this ideology or that.
1: Mm. Why do you think that that is so rare? I mean,
0: you know, I did my PhD in psychology. I studied a lot of evolutionary psychology in grad school, and you know, it's uh, it's a, a rare person who doesn't want to be, you know, I and mean, maybe this is kind of pejorative, but like a herd animal, right? Like you want to be protected, you want to be accepted. Um, there was a study that came out in 2017, which found that this was a, a worldwide survey across different cultures, different societies, which found that right. So, so personal safety, like literally, you know, your physically intact body, that was like kind of the number one concern and priority that people had was like, you know, not dying, not, not being infected, injury and so on. But number two was reputation. Um, people were very concerned about their social image of how they're received by others. And yeah, there are good evolutionary reasons for that, that, um, in the ancestral environment, 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, um, you know, your reputation was critical being accepted by others was critical a human would be sort of unable to be um, self-sufficient in the Pleistocene, uh, in that environment of sort of hunting and gathering, you needed to have a community in place. And we still are equipped with that same psychology today. And it's very uncomfortable, I think, for people, even people I know who are are independently minded, free thinkers, but they've experienced some version of cancellation, They, I can see, like they've they've sort of confided in me that they felt the anxiety and the pressure and the stress, and like it's a very like you know there's there's this line from from Aaron Sorkin about how um, you know getting getting attacked in the media is like being seasick, where like you think the world is ending and everyone else just thinks it's kind of funny. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know and i think there is something something to that that uh you know from from the outside it's hard to hard to understand but like when you are that person and you are taking the slings and arrows i i you know i fortunately i haven't been in that position necessarily um but i i understand it from you know that kind of evolutionary psychological lens i think that's helpful at least to to understand it, but that doesn't necessarily excuse it. Right. We don't live Mm -hmm. in an environment. Like if you are canceled, if you take a stand on something, your life's not going to end. You're going to be fine. You're, you know, where your next meal is coming from. It's not like that. Like we can, we can exert a bit of control over, over that, that anxiety and, and to, you know, be more willing, I think, to, to speak our mind.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting observation because I feel like you don't even have to go back to the Pleistocene area, right? You don't need to go back tens of thousands of years ago because it always has been, even in modern history, and to this day, it is still true, right? I mean, you you absolutely should care about your reputation. I mean, if someone didn't care about their reputation, they'd probably be some type of sociopath or, um, you know, psychopath. I mean, people like to say, even in the, you know, the online entrepreneurship world, you know, who cares what other people think? Like, you shouldn't care about other people's opinions. And I'm like, well, you should. You should just be judicious about whose opinions and which opinions you care about, right? If you're totally afraid to ever rock the boat in any way, shape or form, you're going to live your entire life as a coward and you're never going to do anything interesting because you'll be so afraid of risk. But at the same time, if you genuinely lived your life, not caring about what anybody else thought of you, you would not be, um, you wouldn't be very well socially calibrated. You wouldn't really be able to do anything. You wouldn't, even if you're independent, like someone like myself who's been working for himself for over a decade, I still rely on my audience and my customers. Like if nobody liked me or trusted me or supported me, and I wouldn't be able to earn a living. I don't need to keep a boss happy, um, but I can't just be like totally, you know, I've got a family I've got. I'm going to have my own family. I've got friends like I genuinely care a lot about what they think about me. But I think that uh, it is one of those things where there's a
0: balance to be found, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. To, to varying degrees, all of us care about a reputation and we all at the end of, you know, we have someone to answer to whether, yeah, whether it's, you know, the the boss in the office or your readers and followers and subscribers and people who are interested in what you do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable thing. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a difference between sort of, you know, willingly flouting social convention and just, you know, being a, you know, just, just, Being a a rebel for the sake of it versus you hold something, uh, you hold a principle that you think is important and you know it may upset people, but it's something that you believe is true and that you believe by withholding it, you're actually making the world a worse place by not speaking your mind. And I think in those cases, um, like I understand, like if you work a a normal day job and you have children and you have mouths to feed and so on, like there's, you know, you have everyone's risk profile is different. Um, But I know a lot of people who tenured professors, for example, who are, you know, surprisingly cowardly uh, for certain things, despite the fact that they'll always have a paycheck, despite the fact that they are already sort of secure in their um, occupational position. Um, and yet even they, uh, if they hold uh, a principle or a value that they think is important, but you know, they're unwilling to speak their mind. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah. Context varies. Everyone's risk profile is different. but. Yeah, it would be nice if if more people who were in a position to do so were sort of less less afraid, I think. And and I think we are starting to see that over the last couple of years. I think people like you uh actually are important. Like one thing that I think like influencers and people like like, you know, thinkers and public intellectuals and all these kinds of people who do speak their minds, you sort of give other people permission to do this. Mm-hmm. Um if you express an opinion, you post it online, you do a podcast, you share some view of yours, you're also sort of subcommunicating to people like this is a normal thing to say, and it's okay to say this because it's true. I believe it's true. It aligns with reality. You don't have to be bullied and berated by, you know, society or social media or coworkers or other people into into silencing yourself. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's good that, you know, po- platforms like yours exist.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. It's, it's part of the reason why I do it to give other people the encouragement and as you said permission to know oh okay i can do or i can say that thing or i can at least think about it or have a conversation Mm -hmm. um do you remember what the third thing was on that uh on that global poll so you said number one was the physical safety and integrity number two was reputation do you do you recall what the Uh, third thing was
0: that's you know that's um i think the paper didn't even look at at that like because the main the main point of the paper was about reputation And so they 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 were interested in where it ranked and the fact that it ranked number two was just like a fortunate coincidence what was interesting about that paper actually though is that um in some cases this didn't even seem to be the case that it was subordinate to your physical safety there were cases you know and, and again these are just you know sort of psychological surveys it's not um you know this is what people say it's not really necessarily measuring behavior although they do this but but one of the studies they did they basically just asked participants in the study, um, would you rather uh, have your arms or your legs amputated or for everyone in your community, your friends and family and everyone you've ever known to believe that you were a Nazi? And most people said, I'd rather have my arms or my legs amputated. Um, they did the same for pedophile too. Like Nazi and pedophile are like the two, like archit- those are the, <laughs> you know, those are the most evil things now <laughs> in our society. Uh, and, and it's, it's, yes, yeah, so, so like, you know, pedophile or arms and most people said, I'd rather have an arm or leg like, amputated. The other interesting study that they did, um, in this paper was, um, they had, so th- these were college students at a university and they, what they did was they had these students take, the researchers had these students take, uh, the implicit association test, which you may be familiar with. It's this thing that supposedly measures how racist you are or how sexist mm-hmm. you are, how homophobic. And it's kind of you know the the there are question marks around how accurate this test is, but this was a few years ago when people seemed to have more confidence in this test actually being legit. Um, so they had these students take this test, and they basically rigged it where um, some of the students they told them, um, "We're sorry to say, but like this test, you know, we it, it, it fa- we found that unconsciously you score in the 99th percentile for one of the most racist people who ever took this test." and we're going to like unfortunately, you know because of the way the study works we're going to post your name and your score on the university website uh, along with other people's scores but your name will have the score next to it as one of the most sort of highest races i don't know how they got away with this through the ethics board but they managed to do this (laughs) (laughs) and they they said we're going to put your name on the website um and they weren't going to do this this was all kind of later on they were it was revealed that this was all part of the study but we're going to put your name on the website however uh we we can remove your name from this list and and not have it go up on the website but what we need you to do is to help us with this other study and the other study was that they had to put their hand in this jar of like beetles and earthworms and like disgusting insects (laughs) and and it's like a very sort of physically uncomfortable disgusting repulsive experience and they found that the majority of people would rather go through that disgusting experience than have their name go up on the website saying that they're the most sexist person or the most racist person in the school. And so I think this was an interesting sort of example of like, yeah, we care about our safety and our body. And like, we don't want to, you know, put ourselves at risk in that way. But we also care a lot about like, you know, people would, you know, if you, if you believe the survey, if people would actually go through this, who knows, but people say they would rather lose a leg than be thought of as a, as a pedophile or a Nazi. And so I think in some cases, yeah, this is, um, you know, reputation can be just as important in some ways people will, I think, yeah, they will sort of incur physical danger and harm and put themselves in perilous circumstances if it will bolster their reputations, right? I'm thinking about like young guys who, you know, do dangerous stunts or skateboarding tricks or something like people are willing to, to damage themselves if they can bolster their self image.
1: Yeah, for real. I mean, for. Millennia and to this day, it's a primary recruiting technique for the military. Hmm. If you think about it, oh
0: yeah. yeah. What yeah, would you, you associate like it with? That.
1: Yeah, well, what I mean, you know, the idea of honor, glory, you know, being being a hero. That type of messaging will make men risk life and limb if they think that they're going to be rewarded, even posthumously, as some type of of hero. Um, hmm. it's, it's, it's always been the way that it's been, that it's been sold for thousands, millions of people to go out and sometimes fight wars that are not, you know, not defensive or necessarily justified. But hey, if you do this thing, you're going to be a hero. Hmm.
0: Oh Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. So yeah, there's, they're sacrificing their, or potentially sacrificing their material body for this immaterial hmm. ideal of honor or legacy or status or respect or something along those lines. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for young people, especially it's, yeah, this is like a pervasive concern. Um, something, yeah, something I've long been interested in is this idea of status and how people are preoccupied with it to varying degrees. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's something, um, I think people don't necessarily think about it in a conscious way. Most of the time, like when like when I enlisted in the military and I remember like, you know, my, uh, how proud people were of me and all those things, like it was, yeah, it's just like a nice feeling. Um, that people uh, try to pursue and try to satisfy, even if they aren't like 100% fully aware of it, um, just how responsive we are to the opinions of others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It also, some of the things you're saying about reputation, it's also not surprising because you can see how it manifests in the real world. I mean, one of the most common fears amongst human adults is what's called glossophobia, which is just fear of public speaking. Right. The vast majority of adults are afraid of public speaking. And if you think about it, it's not the speaking that they're afraid of. Right. We all talk to people all day long, every day. So if someone's afraid of public speaking, what are they really afraid of? It's connected to reputation, right? They're afraid, oh, I'm going to stumble or I'm going to trip up. I'm going to be made to look foolish amongst the public. Right. If I say the wrong thing, if I fall over as I'm walking on stage, If I say a joke and it doesn't land and my peers or colleagues or friends or family are in front of me or even strangers, I'm going to be judged. Right. I get people who are like, Zuby, I want to start a YouTube channel, but I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of it. Like, I'm like, well, you're not afraid of opening a Google account and creating, pressing the button to create a channel. You're probably not afraid of like setting up a camera. You're probably not afraid of talking into a microphone, but you are afraid that you might put the video out there and either no one no one watches it and you feel like a loser or people watch it and they leave mean comments and they downvote it and you feel like an idiot that's what it is so i think actually so many fears next to the, you know the ones about basic survival it's all about well what are other people going to potentially think if if i do that and i think it stops people from doing things that are just sort of very simple safe tasks just cuz they don't want to even open themselves up to any type of criticism or judgment
0: yeah yeah i think there's yeah that makes sense and there are people who will like weirdly take this like armchair critic stance of anyone who does put themselves out there Mm -hmm. you know anyone who is in the arena who is putting their thoughts their podcast their writing anything they're you know and and putting themselves in a position where they're sharing their views and others will i think there is that kind of There's that envy, that jealousy that a lot of people have. And it comes out in weird ways because they would like to actually do that too. And they want to, you know, throw some barbs and some insults at you. But deep down, a lot of these people just wish that they had the courage to, to do the same thing themselves. Not all of them. A lot of people are just like, you know, nitpicky jerks, but there are like, you know, there are people who would love to actually start a podcast or actually start uh, you know, an online writing platform or something. You know, tweet more, whatever it happens to be, and they just get angry at others for for doing that, and they want to tear you down. And yeah, I think yeah, the 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 point about um, yeah, wanting to you know wanting to have high regard and and the fear of public speaking is an interesting one. I mean, I, so I I've read about this um, this idea, the the Yerkes Dodson curve, this idea that there's like an optimal level of anxiety when you perform uh, in in a public space and how if you have too little anxiety you actually uh don't perform very well because you basically aren't taking the task seriously enough you're kind of um uh, lethargic and if you're too anxious you know you jittery your your nerves get in the way and you you um can can make some blunders but when you have this sort of moderate level of anxiety uh, of your heart beat elevates blood pressure rises cortisol shoots up like all of those things there was a researcher um i think I think it was Naomi Eisenberger from UCLA, but basically she wrote this very interesting paper. One of her claims in this paper was that the reason why our body, like we have this involuntary physiological response to public speaking is because, um, and she took this sort of evolutionary uh, lens on this idea of in the ancestral environment, if you were in a position where you were being judged by a large number of people, um, your body is responding to the possibility that you'll be ostracized or attacked And so essentially, like all of those physiological responses, cortisol and blood pressure and so on, is your body's preparing itself to be wounded uh, and so that it will activate the fight or flight response so that you can very quickly run and heal from your wounds and recover from those kinds of things. And that was, you know, again, this was a this was a hypothesis. This was not like necessarily this wasn't like an empirical study, but I thought the idea of it was fascinating that, you know trying to attract the attention of so many people at once was a little bit unusual. You were sort of bidding for status, for a leadership position in that sort of early human environment. And there was the possibility that people would reject you or not like what you had to say or ostracize you or vilify you in some way. Um, and you, your body was was preparing itself for some kind of uh, attack or or uh, sort of banishment. And today it's like, you know, it's, it's not like that. Um, It is surprising, like just how how fearful people are of of public speaking. But, you know, I guess, you know, I I, I sympathize like I understand it. I think one thing that a lot of young people lost during the lockdown years is that they didn't have that experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of college is like, you know, for people who who do go that path is, you know, college is supposed to prepare you to be, you know, a bit of a sort of in a white collar position where you present and you are supposed to occupy some leadership kinds of roles in many cases. And it gives you a low stakes way to like present your little PowerPoint on your little senior project or whatever uh, in front of other people. And you know you're not going to be attacked, you're not gonna you're not gonna get fired, you're not gonna lose your paycheck. It's just a little thing you'll get a little grade on. And I think the Zoom presentations are not like they're not legit, right? Like those things were silly. Um, I was a PhD student. I was supervising some students at this time. Like you know n- everyone's mailing it in. No one's really taking it seriously. You need to actually be in person and have those uncomfortable experiences i think uncomfortable experiences in general are important and yeah i think a lot of young people during those two or three years we we lost a lot um of sort of that that resilience that that could have been developed otherwise
1: yeah as well as well as the opportunity to just develop those skills Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you know a lot of people talk about confidence and you know i've had people young men in particular ask me you know how how do you How do you become so confident in XYZ or just in life in general? How do you become a confident speaker, the way you carry yourself, the way you talk to people, whether they're men or they're women, old or young, whatever it is? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of hacks that people talk about on how to fake confidence. You know, fake it till you make it is a very commonly known phrase. But I think that true confidence comes from competence. So if you are, there are many areas that I would be completely, not confident in because I'm not competent in them if someone threw me into the cockpit of a plane as it's in midair and is like all right fly there's like my confidence level it goes from my typical baseline confidence which is quite high um, down to near zero I don't I don't know how to fly a plane i don't know how to there's many things i don't know how to do if you wanted me to speak on specific subjects if someone's like all right zuby five minutes we need to you need to jump on stage and uh you know give a 20 minute presentation on uh on astrophysics or on string theory or um on the history of the israel-palestine conflict i'm like bro like i i'm not i'm not competent enough in these areas to do this therefore i'm not com i'm not uh, confident, but if they want to, oh, you know, give an impromptu presentation on the importance of physical fitness, or tell the story about, um, you know, your life over the last fifteen years, or how you started your music career or your business. or I'm like, cool. I can, I can talk about that for, give me an hour. I, I can riff on that with no preparation forever. So I'm super confident in that regard. So in relation to what you're saying, it's like they also just didn't get the ch- time to build the competence, right? No, you, you don't naturally. Sure, some people are great orators, or they have some talent for it inherently. But like anything else, you've got to you have to practice. You get good at listening by listening a lot. You get good at speaking by speaking a lot. If I go back and I listen to episode one or two of my podcast, I'm going to find ooh, I'm not speaking as competently, and I'm making more uh, mistakes, or I'm using more sort of vocal vocal fillers. And I'm interrupting, I'm, I'm interrupting my guest quite a lot and this and that. And it's like, oh, actually after doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, now I feel very confident where I could sit down with anybody from Elon Musk to Ben Shapiro, to Joe Rogan, and I can sit down with them for a couple hours and I'm not feeling like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I, you know, so yeah, the competence
0: yeah. creates confidence. Yeah, putting in the reps, right? I think that's uh, an underrated force. Where people, you know, they yeah, like anyone who's just discovering, you know, Zuby's podcast or someone's, you know, uh, uh, YouTube channel or whatever. Like they 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 think like like that becomes the the sort of default benchmark of how you how how well you're supposed to do without thinking about the thousands of hours and the reps and everything that goes into that. I mean, I think about the same thing sometimes when I look at you know, like when I look at other writers that I, I enjoy reading and I, you know, I, I look at their early posts or their early days, the archives that go into the back. And I think like, wow, this has changed a lot in the last three years or five years. Um, you know, someone, someone's book, you know, I look at like the earlier manuscripts or the earlier um, phases of their writing career. I look at my own posts from the early days on Substack and yeah, it's, it's changed and it's evolved and it's gotten better. And yeah, it just takes time. It just takes, um, I think that's like a shortcut that people just most people can't um afford to um you know to skip it's just that's just part of it and so yeah a lot of young people you know it's good yeah the young people are sort of seeking many of them are seeking that sort of magic sauce the secret sauce of like how do i get as good as you uh in two weeks and it's like no like to get even sort of in that you need at least two years you need five years you need like a lot more time and you need the experiences and you need to have some setbacks too, some failures, you need to learn. And it's, you know, it's one thing to have, like, sort of a, like, even if even if you were to put you the last, you know, 10, 15 years into a manual into a guidebook or something, that's one thing to have that sort of theoretical abstract knowledge, but to actually go through it, you're still going to have unforeseen blunders, you know, someone else trying to like model their career off of something that someone else wrote, it just doesn't work that way, you have to live it yourself and go through it yourself. In many ways, I think learning from others can help and getting advice from other people can help, but ultimately, um, you know, you can read books all day and you can read guidebooks all day and listen to advice all day, but ultimately like the best thing is to just get out there and put in the reps Mm -hmm. and start doing it. And, you know, gradually it'll be self correcting, right? Like it'll the, the feedback you get from the world and from other people that will be more critical in shaping your, your success and your trajectory. I think that's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't shortcut there's no substitute for experience in anything, in anything. Um, it's good to listen to and read other people's experiences and to get advice and to talk to people and to learn. But I mean, you can read, uh, this goes down to anything, right? You could do all the reading on nutrition and strength training and cardiovascular training and stretching, right? But like you can, no matter how much reading you do and how many, uh, athletes you talk to, if you don't do the training, and you don't do the food and the stuff like you're you're just going to stay the same you could sit there and you can you might be curious about japan and you can read all the books about japan you can go on google maps and you can like look around and see what things look like look at the buildings um whatever it is but there's no substitute to just getting on a plane go to japan spend a few weeks or months there see what it's like soak it all in and that's really it's why i recommend travel to so many people because especially in this day and age with the internet, I think people think, oh, well, I can talk to someone from that country, or I can like see posts on social media, or I can do a Google search and I can look at images. And I'm like, man, it's not the same as actually as actually going there, right? You're not gonna, you're, you, you just, you, there's no substitute for the experience. And I think that maybe it's always been this way, but particularly in the internet and social media age, I think that... um it's created this instant gratification and shortcut mentality. And it's created some very strange comparison points where someone will see someone who's been doing something in many cases for decades, from decades. And they'll, number one, they'll assume that they just started at the point that they're currently at. Um, right? So I, I get this a lot myself. So in the past five years, I've had a significant rise in my Popularity and following and success by many measures. I mean, I've been, I released my first album half my lifetime ago, and I've been on social media since about 2003. Um, I've been on Facebook since 2004, I've been on Twitter since 2009. I created my YouTube account in 2006, even though I wasn't really actively using it, right? So, Um, people see things now and I'll get people who are like, oh, well, um, you know, like, well, it's easy for you to say that because, oh, you, oh, you, well, you've, you've got a million followers or you're connected to Elon or, uh, you're, you're connected to this person. I'm like, dude, I started from zero. I I had zero followers. I had no connections to any of these people. I, I hadn't done anything and it's taken time to get there or someone will see you in the gym and be like, oh, like, I wish i had your genetics or i want to look like you in five minutes and you're like <laughs> yeah. bro i i i'm 37 years old i started going to the gym when i was 15. i've mm-hmm. been training for 22 years you're not going to come in in two months and start outlifting me like mm-hmm. just you, you've you got to do those reps like literally and metaphorically
0: yeah yeah that's 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 well put That yeah every, like everyone starts out with zero followers everyone's like when they first step foot in the gym they're not you know they're not in great shape right like they just they haven't actually worked out and so people um yeah people's sort of point of comparison is yeah you know it's just it's a, it's a weird thing right because you open up instagram you open up twitter you open up any any social media platform and you're you're mostly following people who have large followings because those are the interesting people right like you know there there are plenty of people who are interesting who don't have that many followers but they're just not on people's radar yet like they haven't reached that point where they have the spotlight on them and so yeah most of the content that we see they're created by people who have been sort of at it for a while who've sort of learned and grown and been able to communicate interesting thoughts or or images or uh, their experiences in a certain way and yeah of course when you start out from scratch like i wonder if like maybe there's some there's some kind of like if someone could start this like like an account or something of like You know here's your favorite your favorite influencers here's what you know here's what their account looked like when they started and you could actually just follow those and that gives you a more accurate picture of what the early days look like um i think actually that would be that would be helpful for a lot of people but yeah for me like i yeah i think one one maybe advantage that i've had is like i i don't really have that impulse that much i mean it exists from time to time it flares up but generally speaking i actually don't feel that um if I see a successful writer or successful thinker, or, you know, person who's doing well on social media, I generally don't feel like, oh, I wish I could do that overnight. I'm like, I respect the work that went into it. And I try to keep in mind that, um, you know, there's, there are things that you're not seeing, right? Like every, for every viral post, for every hit that you see, there are probably many other posts or podcasts or essays or something that person has written or attempted or tried that haven't actually done that. Well, there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes that you're not, um, focusing on that that person isn't necessarily trying to present to the world. Um, and, you know, that's just that's just the reality, right? There is that famous line, I don't remember who it is attributed to, but something about how most of us are comparing our our bloopers to everyone else's highlight reel. Um, we're comparing sort of the wrong parts of our lives to, to other people's lives. And, you know, it's funny, like a lot of people actually know that rationally in their, like, logical mind. They know that that's the case, but they still, when they, when they scroll Instagram or social media, anything, there's suddenly like, Oh, I wish I had this person's life. It's like, you know, that person's showing you a narrow slice of, of themselves. And I think even, even for me, like I, I wrote a whole book about my personal life, but even then there were decisions I had to make about what to leave in and what to keep out. And, you know, it's like, no, one's ever getting a hundred percent of the full picture, except for the person living that life. Um, and that's, yeah, that's something I think we could, we could do more, uh, to, to try to understand we're really only seeing what maybe, maybe 5% of the person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's 95% that we are not seeing.
1: Yeah. You know, I actually have a, I have an idea for a book or a movie that's very related to what you just said. And anyone listening, you are totally welcome to steal this idea because I have no interest in writing this book or making this movie. But I, I have this idea for a plot where you have someone who is in this mindset who thinks that, Everyone else just has a better life than them. They're seeing mm. people who have a lot of money or they've got the hot girl or they've got the nice watch or the car or they're the CEO of the company or whatever it is. And this person is just wishing and wishing and wishing that he could swap lives mm. with other people. And then the concept would be that this actually happens and he lives. You, 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 you get to experience other people's lives. Not just the highlight reel, as you said. Not just the superficial things you see at the the surface. But then you see, oh wow, okay, this person has this problem in his. Like you live their life and and all their problems, all the crap that they have to deal with. Someone might be like, oh, I want to be Elon Musk. I want to be the richest man in the world. And then you actually get to be the CEO of SpaceX, of Tesla, um, of X. You've got like hundreds of thousands of people counting on you. You've got foreign governments like hitting you up. You've got the media trying to kill you all in one day. (laughs) You're like, like you now have to deal with all, all of their stuff, right? You don't just Mm -hmm. get Elon's money. You get all of Elon's problems. You get all of his security threats, you get all everything. And I think that, uh, the, the sort of moral of the story would be like, you know, be, be careful what you wish for. Don't just assume that uh someone's life is uh inherently better than yours because you're just seeing the little surface level snapshot and you also haven't had to go through like all of their history and experiences and struggles but then you suddenly sort of take that all on
0: yeah yeah that's that would be yeah i'm surprised no one has done that like that is a really that'd be a great yeah that'd be a great movie i mean that we're not really seeing the, the sort of the interior lives, the difficulties. I mean, cause we, yeah, even with someone like Elon, we do ha- like, we can make like, well, some of it is just like public knowledge, but yeah, the media, like we can sort of piece together just all of the things he has to deal with at least the sort of at, on the public side, but then yeah, the in- in- internal doubts and all of the stress and everything else that comes along with being in that position of all of the sort of emotions and the ups and the downs and the yeah just everything that goes along with that emotionally and internally like who would want that i mean i think most people a lot of a lot of older people i've noticed are are actually kind of capable of that of, of like realizing like you know there are certain advantages to living a simpler life um because you don't have so many responsibilities weighing on you this is like this is almost like a like a naive young person's fantasy of what being rich is like, or being famous is like, of just like, oh, you just get to like, go to the front of the line at a fancy club, or you just like, you know, nice people come up to you and ask for your autograph or to get a selfie or whatever. And it's like, that's not like, that's like one, that's like maybe some of the nicer parts of it, like a very thin slice of it. and. For the most part, though, there's there's just so much more going on, so much difficulties Mm. and doubts and stress and people. Everyone wants a piece of you. I mean, I have like, you know, I have like, you know, one tenth of one percent of like, you know, some some actual famous person, but I'm getting a bit of it over the last couple of years. And yeah, just surprising, like how quickly your calendar can be filled up. Like people are always trying to steal your time and take it like, you know, I mean, it's it's not the worst thing in the world, but um, it's not like. uh, yeah, I think people just have like a mistaken view of like having any level of of, of prominence is actually like there's like a uh, yeah, th- there's this uh, advertising executive, Rory Sutherland, who you may be familiar with, uh, where he says, like, the, the optimal level of fame is to like be recognized at an airport once in a while. And, you know, I think I think actually a little bit more fame than that would be nice, but not much more like, you know, once you get to the point where you like literally can't go outside in public anymore, like I've walked with Jordan Peterson through the streets of Cambridge and like you can't live like a normal life anymore like like within 10 minutes immediately a crowd is following you (laughs) it's like you know i think like maybe maybe the first time it happens maybe the 10th time it happens it's kind of cool and novel (laughs) but like by the hundredth time when you realize like oh i just want to go around the corner and like get you know get some groceries and you can't do that um because of like you mentioned before security risks and Mm -hmm. you know this that and the other like that is actually not um you know that's not something i think most people would actually enjoy
1: no not at yeah. all man and and then you know you see that level and then imagine you know i don't know beyonce eminem just just to be like eminem as from what i've heard like he doesn't even like leave his house man like he's just <laughs> right right like, yeah, like yeah. because he, it's i'm like dude that sucks like that's just a prison like, like yeah. you know people are like oh i want that level i'm like man I, i've thought about this quite deeply myself about okay mm. what level of Fame, popularity, notoriety would be even what I like the level I have right now. It's cool. I get recognized like quite a lot. It's always fun, positive interactions. I can do meetups in different cities and countries and people want to hang out and meet me when it's all really positive. But I'm aware like there's a there's levels and, I, and I've met. Mm. I mean, at this stage, like, I, I've met a lot of people at different levels and I've seen I've seen how they move. And I, you know, I've met people who, you know, they have them and their families have 24 seven security. Everywhere they go, they're moving around, you know, they're just in the gym, the bodyguard is there. They're just like at a restaurant, you know, people are moving ahead of them, like armed secure. I'm just like, man, that's a, that's, that's a bit much. Um, And then I'm aware, like, there's other levels that are much, you know, even higher than that. And I'm just like, actually that would not really be that that is not the optimum (laughs) you've gone way past the optimum level here
0: i still i I wonder if there's almost like a reverse of that like you know being recognized once in a while at an airport is the optimal i think like there may be something like you've 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 surpassed what optimal fame is like if you can't just like go into an in and out and eat a burger without being mobbed right like i still would like to have that level of freedom I think most people would like to have the level of freedom of if you want to just like go pick up some groceries or you just want to like sit down and 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 have a, a meal and you know if a couple of people come up and say hi they like your stuff that's cool but if like literally you can't even go outside right like that is you know w- w- without yeah w- without being uh, interrupted and 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 being you know harassed or mobbed like that is mm. not not a fun life i think I mean, would it be worse though? Like, what do you think would, would actually be worse? Like being completely unknown, like anonymous, no one knows who you are, nothing versus being completely mobbed. I'm actually not sure which I would, which I would prefer. Cause I could see, I could see pluses and minuses to both.
1: I think that as long as you had money and basic level success, then anon- an anonymity.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think if, you, I think if you were like a, a billionaire. Mm. it's probably better to be an anonymous billionaire mm. than one who's like recognized absolutely everywhere. Like if, if those were the sort of, if that was, if that were the dichotomy, right. I think it would be much better and safer to be mm. the anonymous one. Cause then you mm. don't need to, cause then you don't even need to deal with all this stuff, right? You don't have, you're not going to, you don't have as many, you know, the security risks and you need to do this. And imagine that you have children, you have a wife, you've now got a you've just got to constantly be moving in terms of like safety and protection and secure. And I think of people trying to like fr- uh, scam you and defraud you or freaking kidnap your kids. Like, like there's some gnarly stuff that's out there in the world. Yes. Um, and you, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> there's definitely levels to it. Um, I want to switch subjects a little bit, Rob, cause I know you've talked a lot about the idea of luxury beliefs Hmm. This is a term that I myself have used in multiple podcasts. I'm I'm certain to always give you credit whenever I mention it. I think I actually mentioned it in my podcast with Elon Musk when we were talking about some of the ho- sort of homelessness. In... No, no, I don't know. It wasn't about the homelessness in San Francisco. I actually used it in reference to some of the things that are done under the name of so-called uh, environmentalism and and climate change and so on about how there are certain nations, especially developed to Western countries who have sort of built themselves off of uh, fossil fuels and certain things, and then they want to sort of pull up the ladder on countries like China and India and African countries and whatever, and start sort of having this mentality. When people are pushing, oh, just ban fossil fuels, and you're like, dude, no, Like that's not going to work on a a local level, let alone an international one.
0: So yeah, t- tell yeah, me, tell
1: me about luxury beliefs.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. So the luxury beliefs idea, I, I developed this um, concept, this framework in 2019. Um, it arose out of personal observations that I had um, at Yale and then later at other elite universities and then when I was doing my PhD at Cambridge and then through sort of a careful reading of the sort of sociological and psychological research on class and status signaling and those kinds of things. Luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on everyone else. Um, And a core feature of a luxury belief is that the believer is sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief And so if you espouse a certain view, it makes you look interesting, it makes you look sophisticated, you're signaling your levels of education and cultural capital and position in society. Um, And often you'll get plaudits from your similarly affluent peers. Uh, But once that view becomes implemented into policy or becomes popular in the culture and sort of spreads throughout society, um, other people will suffer. And often the people who are espousing the beliefs uh experience little to no penalty whatsoever and yeah the climate the climate thing is interesting i mean i just saw the these survey results reported uh it was in the wall street journal i think it was from rasmus and they reported these results basically comparing the views of ordinary americans to what they termed elites and you know people debate and there's a lot of sort of bickering what does elite mean well in in this survey they defined elites um as Americans with a postgraduate degree, so you know, basically uh, uh, MBA, masters, PhD, uh, law degree, and so on, just professionals, um, postgraduate degree, earning at least one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and uh, living in metropolitan areas. Um, so it's not not the perfect, you know, not, not the most perfect definition, but it, I think it, it gets, you know, it's it's pretty close to understanding you know, when people picture an elite in their mind, I think that's that's definitely um, you know consistent with it. What do these people think compared to ordinary Americans about things like, um, you know, banning fossil fuels or um, banning, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, gas, gas stovetops and um, any kind of yeah, c- combustion engines and, you know, implementing uh, uh, rationing policies around electricity and meat consumption. And essentially the elites were far more like the majority of them, like 70 plus percent were in support of this, like rationing meat. Uh, like that is just insane for for climate for the climate whereas the vast majority of ordinary americans were very much against it like strongly opposed Mm -hmm. to it so there's this massive gap between elites people who are highly educated financially comfortable successful in their careers um, and they have these weird views around social experimentation and what people should eat and what people should drive and how people should live their lives and Within their own countries, of course, but then also, yeah, like you mentioned, in developing countries, other countries that are also trying to reach a certain level of industrial development. And once you reach that point, then all of these benefits arise from having an industrialized, developed country with healthcare, with adequate nutrition, with um, uh, infrastructure, all of those things. And and the elites, the upper class, the people who are very fortunate, primarily ensconced in Western societies. They are attempting to kick away the ladder and the, there's an interesting sort of genealogy around the the luxury beliefs idea. My, my claim is that luxury beliefs have to a large extent, not completely, but to a large extent, replaced luxury goods. Uh, People do still signal their status with their material possessions, but it's more difficult to identify who's rich and who's poor today relative to a hundred plus years ago um an example i've given is you know if you walk through the streets of manhattan uh 100 years ago it was very clear just by how people were dressed who's rich and who's poor you know the the rich guy is wearing a you know you know top hat and has a pocket watch and a monocle and you know it's just very clear that he's a member of high society and poor people it's very clear who's who's wearing um uh clothes that poor people would wear whereas today it's not it's not necessarily clear. Material possessions are a noisier signal of social position. So there was this book in 1899 written by Thorsten Veblen, who was an economist and sociologist. And that was his main point of this book. He wrote this book, The Theory of the Leisure Class. Um, The upper class of that time in the turn of the 20th century wore tuxedos and evening gowns and went to expensive and lavish events. They had butlers and servants and took you know to part in you know expensive hobbies and activities like golf, expensive sports like beagling, a lot of things that you could own that only rich people could afford to do because ordinary people had to work, many of them manual labor jobs um, and so that was how the rich expressed their status. They exhibited it through what they were wearing and what they did and then if you fast forward about you know uh, to to the mid twentieth century, there was a sociologist named Pierre Bourdieu who wrote a book called Distinction a Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste. And this sociologist, um, he coined this term cultural capital, and his claim was that what the upper classes will do is, you know, they'll basically convert their economic capital into cultural capital. They'll spend money to learn about intricate and expensive ideas and develop their their tastes and their habits. At that point in the mid-20th century, it was like learning about the intricacies and subtleties of art and wine and furniture and all of these kinds of arcane subjects that only someone who went to a certain kind of school and had a certain kind of education and upbringing would be able to develop and invest the time and the resources into learning. Um, And I think today, uh, luxury beliefs are essentially a manifestation of cultural capital, that if you're able to present some, you know, basically exert the kind of Intellectual acrobatics necessary to explain why you know we should we should be rationing meat and no longer drive certain kinds of cars or defund the police or say that we should be you know basically downplaying the importance of marriage and promoting polyamorous relationship arrangements. Um, all of those things, if you are a highly educated uh, person, they make you sound sophisticated and interesting, and it basically shows that you went to, you know, a certain kind of university. You went to an expensive university. You read the right publications. You, uh, you know, listen to the right podcasts, and you are basically like plugged into that kind of cultural elite, the taste-making class. You know what um, sophisticated views you're supposed to hold, and you know it's funny. There was this book um, that came out a couple of years ago by Michael Knox about wasps, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. These were the American ruling class uh, from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. And uh, the author, Michael Knox Barron, writes about how many wasps would support fashionable movements uh, because they upset what he, what he what they described as the Vulgarians, the masses, ordinary people. So I'm going to support movement X, Y, or Z, you know, in part because, yeah, it'll make me sound sophisticated and interesting, but also because I know that, you know, the, the deplorables, the Vulgarians, the, the masses, like this is so at odds with how they look at the world that it, it gives me a bit of pleasure to know that they're upset about this. That if I'm promoting polyamory or how we should be eating bugs or whatever, like it's gonna upset them. So let's, you know, let's 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 promote this movement a bit more. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but ultimately the luxury beliefs idea is, you know, look look at the position i'm in i'm at or near the apex of society um and that's really i think what's driving a lot of the luxury beliefs idea and some of it i think is malice but i think a lot of it is just naivete too
1: yeah absolutely it's interesting because they, there's quite a range of luxury beliefs i think that mm. they they sort of range to silly and goofy to downright potentially destructive to society if they were actually, when they're actually implemented or if they were to be um, adopted on any type of scale, right? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, an obvious example from recent years is, uh, you know, the defund the police, abolish the police thing, right? It's like, okay, the people saying that are not living in communities and areas where there's lots of crime or gang violence and stuff like that. You know, you're, you're, you're totally isolated and physically separated from the potential threat. So you can be sitting there in your nice house and be thinking, yeah, oh, you know, this sounds like a nice idea. It sounds kind of cool and progressive or whatever. And then you did actually have places that implemented such policies. And lo and behold, as any uh, reasonable person would predict what happens, you know, crime rate goes up, uh, shoplifting goes up more people are, you know, becoming victims of assault and so on and so forth. And Something like that is, uh, is is very destructive, or you could even take sort of open border policies. Again, you have people who are like, firstly, they don't live anyth- anywhere close to the border physically, um, and they're just totally separated from the whole battleground and all the problems. Their their jobs are not going to be at risk. Right? if you're there earning over 150,000 a year you're probably not worried that you know an illegal migrant is going to come and take your job or force your wages down or something however if you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale and all of a sudden your city state or country is flooded with hundreds of thousands or millions of new people who are happy and willing to work for lower wages then now you've got to compete with all of that and you bear the brunt of it um, you brought up the whole idea around you know marriage and family dynamics right mm. so again people can talk all this talk about oh like you know marriage and monogamy is outdated they're sitting there in their you know heterosexual monogamous uh married relationship and then they're there preaching to the masses about like well I, you, you don't have to do it the way i did right just do whatever the heck you want or it's outdated or whatever and sure their kids their kids are probably going to be fine and insulated <laughs> uh, but if other people were to adopt that and actually put it into practice then your society is going to be in major trouble because yes. sure I'm I'm sure you can find like a handful of people out there where doing all this weird gnarly relationship dynamic like you know it, it, it works for them I'm sure there's an exception you know okay cool like they've managed to figure out figure the thing out but the vast majority of people who try it do not Um, and if you were to actually do this and be like, okay, like, let's make this the norm across millions of people, then, um, that's the kind of belief that could, uh, actually crater your entire society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the marriage one, that was like one that, I mean, that might've been like one of the original luxury beliefs for me. Um, when I first started developing this idea, I mean, I remember like where I grew up, like every, like no one was raised in an intact two parent home. I mean, I was raised in foster homes. I had friends raised by single moms, one friend raised by a single dad, another friend raised by his grandmother because his mom was on drugs and his dad was in prison. I mean, that was like a kind of normal, um, you know, those were like very normal stories, uh, in the kind of working class area of California where I grew up. Um, and then I get to Yale and literally just about everyone is raised by both their birth parents and if you look, I mean, if you just look statistically at, at like college educated women, 90% of college educated women, college educated mothers are married, 90% of them. Um, whereas for people whose highest level of education is a high school diploma uh, among uh, yeah, among women, among mothers, um, something like 60% of uh, uh, births are out of wedlock. And so it's just a massive sort of class and educational disparity there. Um, in 1960, 95% of kids in the U.S. were raised by both of their birth parents, regardless of social class. And if you fast forward to 2005, um, for the upper class, it dropped slightly from 95% to 85%. Um, so a slight dip. But for the working class, it dropped from 95% to 30%. So massive, steep decline. um And again, this is like based on uh, or th- this can't necessarily be the result of economics because there were poor people in 1962. Um, and, in, and actually, poverty in 1960 was probably worse uh, because that was a lot of that was before the sort of Great Society programs and all of these state benefits. Um, so a lot of this has to be the result of cultural forces, too, of the examples that elite set. There's a lot of good research that elite opinion actually does contribute to how people um, uh, live their lives and develop their habits and so on. The examples that they see around them from highly respected people, um, whether on TV or through pundits, or just sort of, it's in the air, the atmosphere of which ideas and lifestyles are acceptable and praised and which ones aren't. Um, and it used to be, marriage used to be very respected, um, and praised and kind of the default path for people. And now it's, oh, uh, if you want to, you can, if you don't, it's okay to, you know, it could range as far as like actually marriages. Yeah uh, patriarchal, oppressive, and you shouldn't do this. And meanwhile, the women in many cases, and some of the men too, who are expressing this view, they themselves are highly educated, the products of two parent families, and they themselves plan to carry that benefit forward and get married and raise their own kids. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, um, there is that kind of element of duplicity there that these are extremely, yeah. So it was funny what you said about, about relationship arrangements that certain people, maybe they can find a way to live in a polycule and make it work for them. And like, you know, if you want to live with your wife's boyfriend, like somehow that can like work for them, whatever. <laughs> but, but I, in most cases, if that works, those people tend to have unique personality profiles, you know, unique, educated, you know, just, un, you know, atypical, make it work for them. But for people who aren't in that category, the same categories of personality and education and all of those other things, if they attempt to live that way, often it will break down very quickly because, you know, for most people, they have natural feelings of jealousy and, you know, romantic commitments and all of these things. And if you introduce other people into that relationship, things usually will fall apart very quickly. Um, and what it reminded me of is actually this idea around like veganism or vegetarianism that if you are again like unique personality profile highly educated and affluent you can invest the time and the resources into like basically mapping out your diet in a way that you can still receive adequate nutrition without eating meat but if you're a poor person in in a developing country and you hear western elites saying you shouldn't be eating meat anymore like what are your options as far as like receiving adequate nutrition and I remember, Zuby, I was sitting at this meeting uh, at Cambridge University with all of these, like, you know, these Cambridge Dons and these professors and so on. And there was this girl with me. Um, she was uh, another student. We were both PhD students. She was from the Philippines. And I knew her a little bit about her background and how she had grown up in a village and sort of you know, got on scholarship and managed to get into Cambridge for a postgraduate degree. And... All of these like, you know, highfalutin Cambridge professors were like, I don't understand why people even would like to eat meat. Like, don't they understand? And, you know, like basically adopting this very snooty elitist attitude around, like, why would anyone even eat meat? Like, why shouldn't vegetarianism or veganism be the default? And it's like, OK, if you're a professor at Cambridge and you have a Ph.D. and you've never had to worry about where your next meal is coming from, that's one thing. But like, I'm like, you know, this this girl, this you know, young woman from the Philippines is giving me the side eye because like her parents are living in a village and like meat is something to look forward to, right? Like if you're working backbreaking labor, you know, working hard all day out in the sun and you don't have that many sources of nutrition. Um, like what, you know, like, what is she supposed to think about what these professors think of her and her family and her culture? And like, you know, so, so yeah, I remember she and I would talk, she wasn't a political person, but like that was in a, a moment that radicalized her <laughs> and, uh, and she was like oh this is not the kind of place i thought it would be because there's a lot of there's a lot of messaging at these kind of institutions around tolerance and open-mindedness and diversity and so on but then once they actually start to learn about how people from developing countries think or their lifestyles or what they do they actually disapprove of a lot of it like anyone who doesn't live like an upper middle class highly educated person like they actually do um, many of them not all but many of them do actually look down on those people or think of them as backwards or retrograde
1: yeah it, it's interesting man there's there's so many interesting points you raised there i was gonna say that uh you know you were talking about these like po- po- polycules or whatever uh you know i think what 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 is really going on there is like there's just massive amounts of cope right like
0: right?
1: i think there's a lot of cope going on and the thing is anytime you even um talk to or, or see on the internet people who are like trying to work out these type of situations whether it's on reddit or anything else they're all there like um you know we're trying to do this thing but like i i keep feeling jealous i'm trying to get over my jealousy order, and i'm like i'm like i'm like bro that is the feeling you are supposed to have yeah like that that th- 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 this is not whether you're coming at this from a from an evolutionary perspective or from a from a religious perspective or from like a just sort of sane critical thinking perspective like they're all there trying to like, like how do i get rid of this emotion how do i stop myself feeling this and whatever and it's like dude you do it by doing things the way that people have generally been doing them for thousands like they our ancestors didn't come up with these institutions and ideas just to be mean and restrictive And like hyper intolerant or whatever. They're like, okay, this is the dynamic that we have found works funnily enough. They found out that this works in like all of these different nations and societies with different traditions and whatever they're like, okay, this is generally what works. And all of a sudden, um, in, in this sort of enlightenment era. (laughs) people are like actually you know what let's uh let's go completely against nature let's go completely against everything that seems to make sense and let's try to just overcome all of these barriers it would be like do you know what it would it would be like it would let's say there's just some there's some disgusting thing that i'm just not supposed to eat right it looks disgusting it smells disgusting. It's like nasty or whatever. Right. And and I'm there trying to like, I'm I'm there trying to consume it. And I'm just like, I don't like the taste. I don't like the smell, like, like everything in my inner being. Maybe I can't like rationally, maybe it's even, uh, you know, you could even say that it's not unhealthy or poisonous, but like, so I can't give a rational, hyper-rational reason why I have this aversion and this feeling of disgust, but it's there. And I'm just there like trying to, you know, I'm going on the internet and I'm blogging. I'm like, man, like, I don't know why I can't just, I can't just consume this thing. Like every time I try to, I don't like, it's like, it's your body screaming at you. It's thousands and thousands of years of your ancestors screaming at you not to
0: do that thing. So, so yeah, it's, so that's, that's a really useful analogy because it's like no one, like society didn't teach you to hate eating that thing. Right. Like that's the thing, right? Like the jealousy thing is really interesting because a lot of, a lot of people who promote non-monogamy, ethical non-monogamy, you know, that they, oh, like you were taught, you were, you were brainwashed by society to be possessive and jealous. And you just got to get over those, that social conditioning. And it's like, actually, you're, you're the one who's trying to socially condition the rest of us into eliminating that very natural feeling, right? Like, it's very interesting like this, there's like a lot of topsy-turvy beliefs around what's natural and what's not. And like, They think that what's natural has been socially conditioned but then what's socially conditioned is is actually what's like the 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 natural thing i mean it reminds me of like the kind of weird gymnastics involved with trying to thread the needle around the the like men and women and like the trans stuff like you know i i I wrote this thing on x like a while back about how I, i guess the now the belief is if you're (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you're a man, it, like, if there's a, a male who wants to dress up and behave like a woman, he was born that way. And if there's a female who likes to dress up and behave like a woman, she was brainwashed by society. Like, that's kind of where we're at now, right? Like, the man who wears the dress and does all these things, like, that's, you know, they were born that way. Who are you to judge? But, oh, a woman behaves in a feminine manner? Like, oh, she was taught to be, you know, to behave like that, and she needs to break out of it. And it's, like, very... um. Inconsistent, it doesn't make sense um, that but that's where we are now, right? Like now you have to get over like like the the, like nature is the thing to get over. And the way that they believe that we get over it is by telling us that it's social conditioning. I
1: I find that in modern Western society, we we spend well, certainly we spend a lot of time pontificating. We're pontificating right now. Mm. Um, And sometimes I wonder if that's part of the problem, right? People are just spending too much time like in their own heads, even when people talk about like mental health and all that stuff. It's like I think if you literally just keep your body physically moving, and you're doing hard things, and you're taking on tasks, and you've got real battles against uh, yourself, fellow man, nature, the environment, animals, whatever it is, you're struggling to survive. Like y- you don't have time for anxiety, you don't have time for depression. Like you're just getting on with all these things. And I do wonder if now we just live in this time where people spend so much time in their own heads, and then they spend time in other people's heads via social media, right? Like you're seeing like you're not even meant to be able to see so many people's opinions and thoughts and ideas and so much information. It doesn't even matter what country you live in, right? Wherever you live, there can be something crazy that happens today in, uh, I don't know, something crazy happens in Australia. And within, within a matter of minutes, people in the USA, in the UK, all over the world, they're all aware of it. They're all talking about it. I can be chilling in Dubai and I'm like, Oh, this is what's going on today in California. This is what's going, whereas in the past, not so long ago, it's like, cool. You've just got your own local, your own local issues. You're not seeing all these horrible and crazy things that are happening elsewhere. And you're not seeing everyone else is running commentary on it 24 seven with infinite scroll. And I'm like, this is why people are going crazy. I'm blessed to have a personality that's like very low in neuroticism. So compared to most people, I'm very insensitive to like negative feelings and emotions and whatever, but most people are not wired that way. And if you're someone who is more emotionally sensitive and prone to these negative emotions and all day, every day, you're just continuously scrolling through this thing for hours a day, that's just amplifying things to make you anxious. Here's another thing to be afraid of. Here's another terrible thing that happens. Oh, here's a video of like some violent incident. Here's another terrible thing that's going on. Here's something to make you disgusted. Um, Here's something to make you angry from, you know, if you're on the left, here's something from the right to annoy you. If you're on the right, here's something from the left to annoy, right? And there's literal algorithms that are like feeding it to you. And then you turn it off and you're eating your meal and you turn on TV, whether it's CNN, it's Fox News, it's whatever, and they're still battering you with more and more and more information and there's people consuming this for I mean what's the average I think the average American watches two hours of TV a day and spends about Mm. four hours on three to four hours on social media it's 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 something around that level Mm. um and you have to keep in mind that for every person who watches no TV that means that there's another person watching like four six eight hours of it Mm. and I'm just like this is there's many reasons why people are you know going crazy but some of them seem quite sort of obvious to me because it's just like, well, human beings are not meant to live like this. And then on top of it, you put in all these, you know, broken family situations, lack of community, um, decline of faith, decline in physical health. People are quite literally eating garbage, Mm. um, drinking too much people. I'm just like, man, this is quite a if if I were an evil person and I wanted to sort of put together a cocktail to make people (laughs) mentally and physically sick. It, it would be hard to come up with a better combination than than the sort of like standard American diet and the sort of all the social cultural media diet yeah. that is just sort of being fed to people on mass.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, now you really have to exert like extremely high agency over your own life to guard yourself from. All of the temptations around like easily accessible, processed, disgusting food that tastes really good but is really bad for you. That's been it's been optimized to be that way, right? Like these companies spend so like food companies and social media companies hire you know the world's top food scientists or behavioral scientists and software engineers, and they have unlimited resources to basically optimize um, you know for for food, right? There's this idea of the bliss point where like a, a potato chip has the optimal level of crunch to make you want to keep consuming those chips. And I think, yeah, social media is is the same way. Um, There was a study a few years ago which found that um, on, this was back when it was still called Twitter, that certain words predicted uh, virality. And these were words, most of them were negative words, uh, like attack, blame, bad, kill, hate. For each one of those words that someone would put in a tweet, uh, it increased the likelihood of being retweeted by 15%. um, and so, so and this was a few years ago. Maybe the algorithm has changed. I think maybe it's not quite as toxic, but it's still, you know, it's still present. Um, there's this idea of the one percent rule on the internet, which I think is helpful. At least it's been helpful for me. Like when I scroll and when I see what I'm, you know, what I'm exposed to online, which is basically it's like a rule of thumb that only one percent of people on social media actually post on a regular basis. Um, of people will comment or like or engage or interact with those posts. And 90% of people are just lurkers who don't do anything except just scroll. They don't engage at all. And so we have the situation where like 99% of the population is scrolling social media. And well, 90% say are looking at 1% of the population sharing their thoughts and their ideas on a regular basis. And 9% kind of interacting with those posts. And they get this very warped view of what the dominant prevailing opinion is. Um, another study on on X was how two percent of users produce eighty percent of the tweets. I mean, you know, and, and I find it funny because like I, I follow, I think like six. Yeah, say I'm like I, you know, I have like six hundred some people I follow. You're one of them, and so I'm following you know six hundred high profile people, and you know, but it's like even even among those six hundred relatively high profile people that I follow, it's really only like fifty of them that I see pop up on my feed on a regular basis. And, and then among those 50, it's really like five or 10 that love to tweet a lot. And so then it's like, okay, people are scrolling and looking at things and they're like, they get this warped view of, oh, everyone's talking about X. And it's like, really, no, it's like your favorite 10 influencers or 15 people that you like to follow or keep track of their ideas, uh, and posts and the rest of us. Yeah. We're, we, we get this, you know, this, we're not thinking about what we're not seeing and what people who aren't posting, what they're thinking about and what they're concerned about. And I think this is like. You know, this is something that people tend to overlook, especially when they're stunned by, you know, like who who tends to like what do actually what do normal people care about? They don't care about like, a lot of a lot of the culture war issues and this, that and the other. Like they care about their families. They're trying to make a good living for themselves. They're trying to get promoted and so on. And but but yeah, I think like more and more, like you said, as families and communities are deteriorating and there's not a lot of connection. Sadly, I think like, yeah, more and more people are turning their attention onto social media and getting their connection in that way. And yeah, I think people need to be mindful that like, it's still not reality, though. It's still not what the dominant majority uh, are talking about. Just a small segment. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, There's something that uh, maybe I'm going to coin it on this podcast, but there's certainly various forms of like terminally online brain. And you, (laughs) you see this in... You, you see this in people's beliefs about different topics where I'm like, you've been spending way too much time on the internet. If you think that that is true. Right. So, okay. Let mm. me, let me, let me, let me try to think of a good example. Um, you, you get it in the political world. You get it in the social world, in the cultural world, in the dating and relationships world. So, uh, okay. Let, let's take, for example, um, the, this, this idea that, um, you know, I don't know. 80, 80, 20, 20% of the men or 10% of the men get like 80 or 90% of like all the women. And if you're not like the top, top, top guy, then there is no chance for you. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I see that. I see that opinion a lot on the internet. I hear it on podcasts. I see it on YouTube channels and so on. And then I go outside. Like I Mm -hmm. I travel a lot. I go outside and I just see like very, very regular, very, very average people coupling up All the time, all over the world, in every different town, in every different city. Right? It's not like oh, this guy's like the this guy's the top G. This guy's like got (laughs) everything. It's just like he's just like a complete normal guy from Poland or like wherever. You know what I mean? Like he's he's just a normal guy. Right? You know, it doesn't matter. I could be in I could be in Colombia. I could be in Qatar, South Africa, Nigeria, USA, UK, whatever. I'm just seeing like normal people coupling up all the time: boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. They're just normal, average people. So, but then the the terminally online brain is like no 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 like that's not happening like these are the stats and this is how it i'm like bro (laughs) go outside and just like observe with your own eyes another thing is like i i don't know like the idea that uh even some of the some of the woke stuff so say for example like I, i don't know all the pronouns thing or like all you know everyone is going trans or whatever and you're like Have you ever in real life, maybe in academic settings, perhaps you have experienced (laughs) this, Rob, but I have never come across a real world situation where anybody asks for anybody's pronouns or when people don't just assume gender right off the bat, like everyone. I'm assuming i'm talking to conservatives and progressives and liberals and apolitical people everyone assumes gender all the time no one meets me and is like oh like or you know are you a he him or are they that everyone just assumes i'm a he him so like you, again you go online and you see like all these weird accounts with their pronouns mm. in their bio and they're talking this and they have like these weird <laughs> sort of rituals that they're going through and then in the real world you're just like this is not this is not a thing like yeah. people are generally um People are generally just not doing this. Another one, and, th- and maybe maybe this is the biggest one, is the perception that um everything is so incredibly bad. And that, like, say for example, I say, um, okay, this is a good example, because in the next 10 days, right now I'm in Miami, but in the next 10 days, I'm also going to Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. If I say I'm going to I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to San Francisco, I like. I will get many, many comments telling me not to go or, you know, take my bulletproof vest or like this, or, right, right. Like I'm, I'm going to I will like people, people genuinely concerned about my safety and genuinely this. And, you know, and I get, I get where this comes from because anytime you're seeing these things on the news, it's the same way that I'm sure you've come across people in the UK who are afraid to go to the USA because they think mm. they're going to get shot or they're yes. going to bump into a racist police officer. So by the nature of the things that go viral,
0: Mm -hmm. or the things
1: that make the news it's it's tends to be the worst of humanity it's these abnormalities these weird situations like very weird things going on and then people make it out like the entire you know oh you know don't don't go to london don't go to london like you're going to be the victim of like knife crime or this or this and i'm like bro like again get off the internet like you've been you've been you you, and, and and i think it's weird because people become convinced it's true because the truth is we now have access to so much information yeah. That you probably you, I'm sure that if you wanted to, you can easily find a hundred plus videos, a thousand plus videos of terrible things happening in London. Right. Hmm. You can you can find like a thousand videos of people getting assaulted, and people are like, Well, Zuby, how are you saying it's not true? Look at this video, look at that video, look at that. I'm like, bro, what you are not seeing is all of the billions of interactions. Yes. Like all of these situations are anomalies. The fact that you can find a thousand of them doesn't mean they're not a lo- anomalies, because hmm. there's no there's no news story of, it was a nice day in London, and people got on well with each other. Oh, it's a, it's a sunny day in Chicago, and people like had went for picnics, and um, no one got, you know, not not nothing crazy happened. It's only when those incidents happen. And now, of course, everyone has smartphones, everyone has video cameras on them all the time. Everyone has cameras on them all the time. So it's not just that you hear about the story, but you also see it, Hmm. you see it all the time, right? You can find a 1000 videos of police, assaulting people, killing people, doing bad things, thousand videos over the last 20 years. And people are like, well, how are you denying that the problem is as bad as it is? Look at all of this evidence. So it sort of seems like it's true, but it's also not reality in terms of what is normal. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the very fact that those things, grab our attention, that they go viral, that they, yeah, that they enter the media in the first place. It's because they're anomalous events, right? Like, yeah, like you said, no, no one is going to write a news story about like, oh, a neighbor went across the street to check in on their elderly so-and-so to make sure they're okay. Like, that's not going to make the front page of the New York Times, right? Like what makes the front page is someone killing their neighbor or beating some innocent person or robbing someone or whatever, right? Like everything that we see in the media by definition is unusual. That's why it's in there. In the that's why it makes the news. That's why journalists are reporting on it because they know it'll get eyeballs. They know that it'll get attention uh, because it violates what we expect in everyday life, which is actually we we expect people to be kind, to be normal, to be nice, to be generous, and yeah, I'd be like, I've, I've heard that so many times from people about how, like you know, not non-Americans because so yeah, I live in the UK. I was stationed in Germany for a while. Like I've lived overseas for for a long time, and so. Yeah, people oh like america it's like just so many so many school shootings so many guns so much you know i would i couldn't even imagine living there what it would be like and it's like the likelihood of getting shot at all in general in america is like you have a greater likelihood of being hit by lightning like 10 times i think or some you know it's just so so unlikely um but yeah they, they here then the media will endlessly cover some event and that becomes people's anchor for what reality is like it's just again the the dating thing that drives me up the wall too like to hear like oh i i you know i saw this thing online about how you know women will only swipe on this number or that number and it's like well dating apps are becoming popular i think there's a bit of a dip now i think more and more young people are actually refusing to use them because it's been saturated and because of all the accompanying issues with them But only about thirty to forty percent of young adults have ever downloaded a dating app and actually used them. It's it's the most it's a plurality of people meet through dating apps, but it's not the majority. Um, And most people still um, are not meeting their partners uh, through through online dating, uh, especially in places like university environments or you know sort of young professional situations. Just outside of that that space, and so when yeah, like these guys, like if you're not six feet tall, if you don't, you know, it's like. It just like, if you go outside, you'll see guys who aren't six feet tall and they have a girlfriend, right? Like most people are actually not single. I think actually the largest number of people who are single are young men. But I think a lot of it is because of those self-defeating behaviors, those debilitating like doubts and everything. And it's like, you know, when I, like before I was, had any level of, of recognition, um, when I was just a regular dude, like. If you just go out and like talk to girls, like eventually you'll get a girlfriend, like that's just nature, right? Like that's just half of the population are women. You just go out and talk to people. Most people throughout history have figured it out. Um, so yeah, I think it's like, it's really toxic. I think a lot of these guys, you know, I'll play armchair psychologist for a second here, but I think a lot of these guys are afraid of rejection. They're afraid to put themselves out there. And so to even to, to basically avoid that uncomfortable experience in the first place of approaching and taking risks and talking to a girl. Instead, they just like immerse themselves in these statistics and develop these elaborate, you know, pseudoscientific explanations for why it's hopeless and why they shouldn't uh, even bother in the first place. They'll hear some story about some guy getting cheated on. Oh, that's how women are. And so then I'm not, you know, you might as well just not talk to women because you're gonna get cheated on. And they just, you know, they they cling to these outlier events so that they themselves don't have to be, courage, yeah, be courageous uh, in, in their own sort of, you know, in, in that way that young men have to be and be prepared to be rebuffed or turned down. And that's just part of, we used to accept that it's kind of part of young adulthood. It's just part of life that if you like a girl, she may turn you down. That's okay. Like that's just life, you know, like anything else. But now it's like, no one wants to take that risk anymore. I think, yeah, it's just um, all of that stuff online on social media. And it does spill out because what was funny, like I'm I'm old enough and I think you're, yeah, you're probably old enough to see like what started on the internet and in, like whatever Red Pill, Reddit, Manosphere, that kind of stuff. Like it was kind of niche. It was kind of weird. A lot of it was just like, it was internet culture. And that is now the dominant culture. Like now I talk to like handsome, good looking jocks who will like talk about red pill stuff. And it's like 10 years ago, that archetypal dude, you know, the, the captain of the football team is not talking about red pill Reddit, but now they are like, it's mind blowing just how steeped into this kind of internet culture young people are. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's in the long run. I don't think it's, it's, it's going to be good. Um, we're due for a correction. I think of just mm. young people have always met each other. They've gone on dates, they figured it out, you know, and. Well, I think we'll get there, but it's going to take some time.
1: Yeah, I hear that. People always say the Internet isn't real life or social media isn't real life, which is partially true, but somewhat not. Because it's like, well, the people you are seeing there are real people. And as someone who has been active on social media for well over 15 years now, I do notice that you can predict what's going to happen in real life, oftentimes based on social media, because you'll see it there first. You'll see it on the internet first, and then two to five years down the line, you'll really start to see it sort of seeping into real world conversations, even with the language. So mm. I I remember the first time, here, here's an interesting one, Rob. I remember like, it must have been around 20, must have been around 2014 or 2015. I remember the first time I discovered the whole pronoun, the whole pronoun in bio people right I, I went down this rabbit hole i was on twitter it was yeah it was like 2014 2015. and I, I i was someone had like commented on something and i went to their profile and i saw like she her or he him i can't remember who was a man or a woman and i was like it's like what's that I was like why is that, <laughs> like, what's that? You're, you're like like, like, I, like I, I was genuinely confused i was like what's going on here and then um you know it, it was like people now say the word woke, but at the time, you know, we used to, people used to say social justice warrior, right? SJW. And, um, you know, it was all like these left-leaning accounts. And I, I found, like, I discovered, like, a subculture because they were all, I looked at like the pers- the other people this individual was talking to and I click on their profile and I'm seeing like she, her, he, him the- and I'm like, what on earth is going on here? Like, why do all of these people have like their... <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw it, like I'd never heard of it in real life. I'd never like I I hadn't heard about like stuff going on at universities or whatever. It was like kind of early. And I was just like, what on earth is all of this stuff going on? And then there was this sort of like mainstreaming of it to the point Mm -hmm. where, you know, now on whether it's LinkedIn or it's someone's email signature or whatever. But like I saw it first. There's so many things that I first saw on social media and I didn't know it was a thing. And then a couple of years later down the line, I'm like, "Oh boy, okay, this is like, this is actually like, a thing." I thought this mm-hmm. was just like a weird internet, you know, cult or joke or something. So there a is joke. some predictive. <laughs> there is some predictive. There is some predictive power in yeah. uh, in in some of these things. They do they do start affecting reality.
0: Yeah, it's it's it does like it has this kind of it spreads throughout, uh, it catches on. I mean, a lot of this stuff, like yeah, it starts on internet culture, or a lot of it is. It's birthed in uh, universities and I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned before, like, have I seen this in my day-to-day life? Like, sadly I have to like, yes, like, you know, regrettably I've seen it. I saw it at Yale. I see it at Cambridge. Like I've seen it at other universities where, you know, it's, I think it was, it kind of reached its peak probably in like 2018 or 2019. I think like the pandemic and lockdown stuff kind of like affected it in like day-to-day interactions, but I still see it everywhere in um, like email signatures. Like a lot of professors and administrators and people who work in academia, you know, it's like, yeah, they, them, she, whatever. Yeah. I don't even, you know, it's it's like, so ridiculous, like (laughs) I've refused to do it. Um, I do know, like, you know, I do know people who have like used it strategically where like suddenly they'll adopt they, them pronouns. At a certain point in grad school, because they know when they apply for a postdoc or an assistant professorship and they mark that they're gender non binary or trans or whatever, but like they present as just an ordinary, and these have been women, um, that uh, there's like, in case they need, they need like a paper trip like okay you identify as trans how long have you done this and you know they say oh i've been doing it for the last four years and if someone happens to like look at an old email from 2019 or something it's like oh yeah they've been a AM them since 2019 so yeah this is a trans person despite not really changing their appearance or anything else and like it's like a calculated strategy a lot of these people use um i think a lot of yeah a lot of them are lunatics and unhinged and sad and weird people a lot of them are smart and careerists and will do you know do do what's necessary to play the game <laughs> um and we'll be a they them for four years in order to position themselves for a good um a, you know a, a professorship so it's just just wild what's what's happened i mean the pronoun thing i'm like yeah just floored me when i because i arrived on campus in 2015. <laughs> okay i started yeah. college when i was 25. so i was already older I was getting, yeah, I was getting out of the Air Force. I just been discharged. I, you know, I got out in August, started classes in se- September, and I start hearing about this pronoun stuff, and I was like, yeah, this is weird. Like, but then it just like pervasive. Suddenly, it was everywhere. Suddenly, it was in email signatures. Suddenly, yeah, and I'm like, this is insane. Um, it's one like I get it. You know, at the time, I, I I tried to understand it, and it was like, okay, if you're a trans person and you want people to refer to you at a certain way, fine, whatever. I'll call you whatever you want. But it was to normalize and to make people feel and it's like, you know, like, clearly you're a woman, like, you're dressed like a woman, you want people to know you're a woman based on the way you're dressed, like, but you're trying to tell everyone that you're a she her and it's like, you don't need to tell us like it's, it was so bizarre that that was like one of the many kind of points of, Mm. you know, concern that I had when I was going through the academic system. Yeah, it's it's
1: so fascinating. I mean, I was uni- I was in university two thousand four to two thousand seven, and it's amazing how much these campuses have just changed since then. Like, if I think back to to that time, it you know, to some people it sounds like it was you know, if I, to a twenty year old listening to this, it's going to sound like a, a a very long time ago. But for me, it <laughs> yeah. really it really doesn't seem that long ago, and it's like all of these ideas. That have just sort of like sprung up and rooted in in the past decade. I'm just like, man, this was not this was not a thing. I met I met some students from Oxford not long ago, and uh, you know they they recognized me and were following me online and whatever, and you know agree with a lot of my stances. And they were kind of like actually thanking me for pushing back on some of this stuff because they were like, man, like even in Oxford we've got to deal with this and this and this. And I was like, dude, like when I was there, just none of this was none of this was a thing. You had people Mm -hmm. who were politically right, people who were politically left, you know, but like the liberals and progressives were like relatively sane. They weren't, they weren't sort of pushing these very strange ideologies and ideas and certainly were not like forceful with it. Nobody was getting deplatformed. No one was trying to like cancel anyone or whatever. It was just like okay, cool. Yeah, there's people with different ideas and opinions. And we can have some healthy debates, but we can all still be friends. And we can just like, chill or whatever. There were none of just none of these clashes. Um, I I got protested for the first time in uh, in 2022, in Florida, Mm. of all places, I spoke at Mm. Stetson University in Florida. And I, I was not funnily enough, I was giving a speech on free speech. But it was the first time I'd been to an event and dozens Dozens of people showed up with like signs. And, you know, like I was, I was like, this is for me. <laughs> this is like, li- like little, little old, little old friendly me. I was like, geez, what, what did I do? Um, mm. and, and it was what? fascinating because the people who came to protest me, most of them didn't even know why, mm. like their signs had nothing. You know, one person's holding a BLM sign. One person's holding a trans lives matter signs. People are holding rainbow flags. People are just like, like, there's no coherent through line between all of the things and then you know even during the q a and everything like you know because i i invited them in i was like cool like if you you guys came to protest me if you've got questions you want me to answer again i gave i just gave a free speech on free speech let's have some some free speech and there were a couple handful you know who had researched my tweets and you know like they pulled up some tweets and you know taken some issue with them that was also hilarious by the way rob because uh The the first angry protester, there was there was this, there was this girl, and you know, she was she she came and she had like a rainbow flag or a trans flag or whatever. And um, she was very um she she had she was like so like she had like a serious face and she she looked angry and she you know she was ready to like confront this you know far right supervillain or whatever on her campus and she was like, Okay, what did you mean by this tweet? You know, I've been going through your tweets, da-da-da. And she's like, What did you mean by this one? and she says so i had a tweet that went viral and it said um ladies if your boyfriend has he him in his bio you have a girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) and so and and so she read the tweet out loud and the entire room burst into laughter including half of the protest (laughs) Uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. (laughs) and she's there like with this straight face like trying to be like all angry and she's like she's like "What, what you're like demanding me to like explain it and i was like I was like, "Do you really want me to explain it?" You know that people are just like laughing, and I was like, "I was like, I was like, it's a, it's a joke." And she's like, "Yeah, but you know, she's like, were you being sexist, misogynistic, or transphobic, or all of them?" (laughs)
0: Like she give you, she give you a menu. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it was just the whole thing was so it was such a strange and surreal experience, but um, but but it was interesting, and um, at least half of the protesters left left there, and I'm sure in their brain they were like, "Oh, actually, like he's he's a nice guy." Mm-hmm. Um, cause I just treat some of them came at me with, you know, like the anger, the rent I And mean, I was just super polite. I didn't insult anybody. Um, I answered all of their questions. I even invited people to like, hang out with me in the green room afterwards, including some of the protesters just to like sit down and chat. Oh, cool. Like, you know, what brought you here tonight? You know, what do you, what are you studying? Like, you know, just get, just talking to people like normal human beings, yeah, cause yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't know what they expected. I think, you know, they expected me to be like this evil. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they expected. But it's (laughs) just like you don't you just don't give them that energy at all and they're suddenly like feeling a little bit silly that they've spent four hours sort of dedicate of their evening dedicated to like fighting against you when they're just like oh okay like we don't share the same political views on everything but you're not you're clearly not like evil you don't you don't hate me i i there was there was one girl i was like you know why did you come here to protest And she was like oh you know like i have friends who are uh trans and in the lgbt community and you know i'd heard that like you were like that you hate them or that you're attacking Uh, i was like i was like because i did like my deadlift tweet you know what i mean you're just like like that means that i like hate people now um and i was just like yeah like no like there's, there's no there's no hatred there's no animosity like i'm not on board with uh, the whole trans ideology i don't think a man can be a woman i don't think men should be competing in female sports but none of that is rooted in any type of hatred or animosity of anybody um it's rooted in biology and what makes sense and actually what is fair to women um miss young woman you know what i mean it's like strange that you you think these things would be a bit more obvious but i learned that you kind of have to walk them through it sometimes
0: yeah that's that's so like it's weird that that you know concern or criticism or questions gets conflated with hate you know like like if you say that yeah a a, a man can't be a woman then suddenly you you hate like why 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 does that become the natural next step is like because hate is a very strong word and it's like a very powerful i mean that's probably why they use it honestly but like you know like why does that become like the the terminology that they use and it just seems like so exaggerated, so histrionic to jump to that point that, like, you know, if someone if someone criticizes a group or or a, you know has a question about a particular person's behavior, um, you know, like like, you know, some some man who adopts she her pronouns and then like wins the swimming competition or something. And you're just like, isn't this a little ridiculous? And it's like, oh, now you hate this entire category of people like. Why? What? Like, that's just that's just insane. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of people are, are sort of adopting that that very, like, simple minded mentality of mm-hmm. like, there's like a weird dearth of critical thinking of what does it actually mean to hate someone? Why is that word used so frequently? I also find it interesting, like how frequently hate is used in our society in general, standing against hate, or we're opposing hate or fighting hate in a very little Uh, attention and energy is invested in the idea of love Um, and I think like my my suspicion my hunch is that like love sounds frivolous or unserious or you know airy-fairy it's not real it's like this you know just an emotional touchy-feely thing but hate is like serious and hate is you know Maybe maybe people aren't capable of love, but everyone's capable of hate, and we have to stand against hate. There's something going on there that I'm, I, I, you know, I need to think through this a bit more clearly. But yeah. I don't understand why we can't just say like we're all for love versus we're all against mm. hate. Like those, like why I, why does one know, energize people more than the other?
1: I think it's easier to rally people around negative emotions. Hmm. Um, you 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 see this? I mean, this it's true in marketing for sure. It's true mm-hmm. in marketing. It's true in the media it's easier to capture people's attention and to energize them by striking some type of fear into them if i have a product it doesn't even matter what it is i can market it based on you know the positives or the benefits and you know i can try to sell that or i can you know make it sound like there's some massive existential crisis going on whether it's regards to your health your finances your uh, your family whatever it is hey like this giant threat is coming down the pipeline you need to pay attention to this. And I would guess that just because as human beings, um, we've always had to be very sensitive to threats. So if someone says like this thing or this person or this word or this idea is rooted in, it's is about hate or in, you know, and we need to stand against this, then I think people sort of pay more attention immediately. Um, and that, that that would be my, that would be my guess. I, I've noticed that a lot of people rally around what they are against rather than what they're for. It's mm-hmm. it's why even with the way I communicate and things I say, like I've had people, um, for example, uh, call me like anti woke. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm, car- I'm very careful to not describe by myself by the things that I'm against. Mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. much better to describe yourself by the things that you're for or in favor of, right? Like you, you can go on some people's profiles and you, like, they'll tell you everything that they're opposed, right? They're, uh, they're anti-maga, they're <laughs> anti-hate, they're, um, anti-religion, uh, they're anti-fascist, they're anti, they, like, they're like they're anti all these things, but it's like, okay, but like, what are you for? What do you believe? What do you like? Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of people's time, even, even, even some influencers, right? They spend all their time about, you know, this is what I dislike. This is what, I th-, you know, like everything they don't like. You're very, very aware of that. But I'm like, okay, but what do you, what do you like? What do you support? What are what are the ideas that you think are better than the bad ideas you criticize? Um, Mm -hmm. so with myself and the way I communicate, I do my best to focus more on like, look, okay, these are the things that I am for, these are the things I'm in favor of, these are the things I think are good and wholesome. I could spend all day just like, I mean, you 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 I could have spent, you know, I could put out a hundred thousand tweets over the past five years, like just quit criticizing woke stuff. It's not hard to do, right? There's a lot of stupid stuff out there. I can just spend all day, every day just being the, you know, look, this is stupid. This is stupid. This is stupid. Here's why this doesn't make sense. And once in a while, if I think something is particularly harmful or destructive, I'll say, okay, like this is a bad idea and here is why. It's really what I did with the deadlift tweet. I did it in a humorous way, but it's like, look, this is like, this is a really bad idea and let me show you why. Let me not tell you, let me show you why, like, Leaving the mm. door this wide open for any big bearded man like me to just like step in here and do this thing. This is why it's a bad idea. I can sit all day talking to you about testosterone levels and muscle strength and density and upper body strength and like all the reasons why, you know, males are faster and stronger than females. or I can just lift up that weight with ease, a weight that like oh you know, no woman in England <laughs> is able is able is able to lift. And just yeah. demonstrate to you, okay, this is why this idea is really, really silly. But I think with it all, you have to you have to have a sense of humor.
0: I, I wonder you know, this 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 thought occurred to me just that it would be so funny if um like an, an act like um a, a man who was extremely big and strong, identified as a woman and broke the male deadlifting record and can receive some notoriety and fame for being the first woman to break the male deadlifting record. Like that would be so funny, man! Like to have some, you know, it would it would be like a tr- because like the kind of guy who could deliver the most weight in the world, he would, you know, he'd he'd do it as a troll, he would do it as a, as a lark, right? And it would be funny to say like, you know, I'm smashing the patriarchy, <laughs> you know, like that'd be so funny, man! Like that idea that of of like like what you're against versus what you're for reminds me of like if you walk around university campuses, sometimes you'll see those like booths or stands, uh, for like basically like the local socialist movements, and often their pamphlets and their shirts and the iconography around it is like smash, smash capitalism or like, you know, destroy the corporate, whatever. Like, it's a lot of like violent, uh, verb followed by, you know, whatever now they're against, like smash, destroy, whatever. And it's like, none of like, okay, you're socialists and you're, and, and, or communists in many cases, they're actually communists. And they'll say like, the aim is to basically like level wealth and help the poor and so on, but it's all about who they hate. They hate, like the energy around them feels like they hate the rich more than they want to help the poor, right? Like you'll see people with shirts that say eat the rich, but I've never seen anyone with a shirt that says feed the poor, right? (laughs) Like, what are you actually concerned about attacking the rich or helping the poor? Like why not feed the poor? Why is it eat the rich? Right. And it's like, I think there is also this like underlying resentment and angry and anger. And it's just like a safe, acceptable way to channel that like internal, rage it's very odd I mean do we actually care about helping people or is it all about you know taking down your adversaries and you know sniping at your enemies it's um mm. yeah I think it's yeah it's it's something I think we should yeah we're, we're thinking about for a lot of these groups
1: no doubt man 100 percent Rob you are one guy who I could talk to for hours and hours and hours on end but I want to be uh respectful of your time I'll definitely have you back on the podcast sometime in the future um but uh Tell people a little bit about your book. Here's your chance to plug yourself. Where can people find and follow you online?
0: Uh, yeah, they can follow me uh, on X at Rob K Henderson. Uh, my Substack, Robkhenderson.com. Rob K And yeah, my book Trouble: a Memoir of Foster Care, Family and Social Class uh, out February 20th. Uh, yeah, it's been endorsed by a lot of notable people, uh, including Jordan Peterson, among others. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting the book out there and know, seeing what people think. So yeah, Zuby, I'd love to come back. It's been great. Thanks so much, man.
1: Awesome, Rob. Thanks very much for coming
0: on the podcast, man. I appreciate it.